out of school in the first few years after business school, there was just that, that feeling that of working for someone else that wasn't completely satisfying, Mm. even though success was there by, you know, on paper, I was doing great. My parents were proud, but ultimately my heart was just, you know, I just felt that I, I was called to do more. This is Sasha Shell. That was Jenny Bird. And you're listening to Dear Seekers, a podcast exploring and celebrating the art and practice of seeking. By having honest conversations with intriguing, insightful, and inspiring women, our goal is to encourage each other to keep seeking deeper within ourselves and the people, places, and products around us. This year, we also launched Seeker Supply. It's a newsletter, goes to your inbox once a month. Next one is on March 28th. It contains the exclusive rapid-fire chat with Jenny, some recommendations from her, and other useful resources shared by other seekers. It's free to join, so sign up on dearseekers.com. Jenny is the founder, creative director of her namesake jewelry brand, Jenny Bird. Since the launch in 2008, Jenny and her husband slash business partner, Adam, have taken the brand far and wide. Now selling in over 500 retail stores internationally, having a multi-million dollar business, and living in a magazine-worthy home with two beautiful children, Jenny seems to quote-unquote have it all. But getting where she is now isn't easy, and certainly not overnight. First, Jenny started her handmade handbag collection. She failed. A few years later, she pivoted and started again. And guess what? That didn't go far either. Third time's a charm, she started selling jewelry on her kitchen table just to pay mortgage. And that eventually led to Jenny Bird. Through our conversation, full of deep thinking, Jenny takes us to her childhood Living in a small town, she is the power of visual manifestation and trusting the universe, and opens up her fertility challenges before her firstborn. I feel extremely privileged to have called Jenny in a moment of change. We visited her at home right before the birth of her daughter, Georgie. As we're recording right now, the baby can be coming out any minute. Yes. <laughs> Ideally in a couple of weeks, but yeah. sounds like maybe could be It's coming a really up. strange thing to be preparing to meet someone who's mm-hmm. going to be in your life forever and a love of your life, and it's really cool. And do you feel something different this time than when you had the first baby? And to, yeah, the pregnancy experience is actually, I'm sure it's as different as it is to meet them and live with them. It's very different, each each baby. Um, it's a spirit that's inside mm-hmm. of you, right? So right. you are joined by that spirit and you feel them um, and they affect you based on their qualities. She's very different. I know it's a girl. She's very different from August, I can tell already. So you know it's a girl because 
you just intuitively know or you actually I I did find out biologically we found out from our doctor but yeah. we do we do, I did meet her in my dreams about a year and a half ago and no I, I knew she was coming I saw her I was holding her which was part of the journey to sort of see if she was she was meant to come into our lives or not um, but yes, I knew I knew before the doctor even said that it was a girl because really? I had seen her before. Yeah, I'd held her in my dream and looked at her face. Not, I didn't know. I actually didn't. I I can't tell you what her face specifically looks like, but she was darker, more my husband's coloring, dark hair and olive skin. My son's very Aryan, so we'll see if that's right. But but my first baby was ten pounds, and I really don't want to have to do that again. So yeah. we're gonna try to have her come a little early, and apparently. Um, 10 my, pounds is a pretty big baby. Yeah, it was big. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, not, not fun. But my, uh, my, uh, clairvoyant also was saying she'd probably come early. She's a bit of a firecracker apparently. Right. This one, so. And I heard, of course, I have no experience with motherhood, but I've heard the second time actually usually is, uh, easier than the first time. It should be. Yeah. I'm hoping so. Okay. Yeah. You definitely, your body definitely knows what it's doing. Right. You know, one thing you always have to trust is, preparing for birth is just like your body knows how to grow a baby it knows how to deliver a baby mm. you can start to feel your body open and the relax and kick in it's quite a beautiful thing to be in tune to mm-hmm. um, so during labor it also is something that I just try to keep the thought lead in my head on is that my body's guiding me through it it has nothing to do with with me forcing it certain ways mm-hmm. you know yeah so if you have that trust in your physical body um, then you know it's it helps be a little more relaxed. It's mm-hmm. definitely scary still thinking there's a big baby in there that's coming out any yeah. minute. <laughs> but just by uh, we've been sharing and talking for maybe just a few minutes, there is a common thread kind of having happening from what you have sharing is that timing has to be right or you have you have to feel right. Is that something you always feel like? Always. Right? Always. Yeah. I think there's a, a really... More. Well, I think there's a really important balance in life to make decisions to take yourself and your life where you want it to go Mm. because ultimately I I feel that very much that it's in your control your life as it is today is based on decisions you've made in the past right Mm. at the same time when you're making those decisions and stepping towards your heart-led life or your wishes for your life there's also a need to in parallel hold a very relaxed state of trusting the universe and that as you're walking towards that that your path will unveil and that timing the right timing for things will be shown to you Mm. right so it's this like yin yang of feeling very in control and manifesting and listening to your heart but also trusting in and watching for signs because if if you're doing the first the latter happens Mm. does that make sense yeah with this kind of intuition or getting in tune with your own thoughts and feelings always was there for you or you feel like this was something kind of like a learning or practice along the years that almost a skills that you attained later on that's a good question i think it was definitely skills i honed as i watched them actually work that way um definitely my 20s was was more so spent feeling uncomfortable and why I wasn't living in a flow like that Mm. um you know I was just seeking something I guess fittingly and so I guess um I what I sought out was how to actually find myself in the place that I and the path I should be in life and that was an exploration through my 20s 
that yeah. led me to living that way more so in my 30s. If we can uh, kind of revisit your childhood, mm-hmm. um, what kind of memories that kind of stand out? Um, yeah. yeah, whether it's good or bad, um, whether you feel like that have shaped who you are today. Maybe it could be some memories kind of enlighten you in some way or kind yeah. of make things clear for you. Um, I grew up in a very small town, Elora. It's called. Um, it's an artistic town of a small population, about three thousand people outside of Wealth. We moved out to the countryside to actually a, a farm that my grandpa Bird had owned. My dad got back in our family, and um, it was a very isolated childhood that way. In that it was a very very small community, but it was also I was lucky that it was really artistic because there was a river running through. It was just such a scenic beauty, the town mm. and this gorge. It probably I don't know if anyone listening knows Elora, but it's a stunning little place. People go camping in the gorge and. Mm. Um, it attracted silversmiths and potters and early environmental activists to live there. And so it was a town that I was exposed to this um, alternative creative lifestyles, which was, I think, definitely shaping. And then the other thing that was primarily shaping was my father. He was a man about town. He was a farmer that grew up very poor. My mother as well. Both of them mm-hmm. met very poor, actually, at a junior farmer event. At 23, they got married and they decided to build their life together and make it, make something more of it for themselves mm. and not accept that their circumstances. Now I think the farm life is idealized in many ways and certainly can be idyllic, but for my parents, it was um, a struggling childhood uh, for their families with many, many siblings. My parents are both from large farming families of six. And they decided to build a life that was better for their family, their little family of four, my sister and I, by getting educated even beyond, you know, parents saying, why would you do that? My mom became a nurse and um, my dad was a self-driven entrepreneur. It's interesting now to look back because I was I was watching my father striving all the time, mm-hmm. bettering the life of our family. And I just watched him build uninhibited and with this true belief in himself mm. that and that was you know something that gave me not only us like a decent then middle class um, upbringing that allowed me to go to university um, but it gave me the confidence to feel like well I could do that too at, mm. at the next level now I'm in this really comfortable place of you know, having a degree out of university and what, well, if he could do that, my God, I'm not, I'm not crossing near the hurdles that he had to. So he's always been like my, I call him like my OG mentor on mm. manifesting my life. Right. So after graduating from university, uh, what did you study and how did you, because I know we went to marketing. So yeah. how did you yeah. go from university to marketing? And also, maybe a lot of people didn't know about this. Also, I included myself. Um, JB originally started with handbag. So yeah, tell me this whole journey. Well, there was a responsibility to um, to take from what my dad had built from us, which was an opportunity to have a university education and put it into something very practical so that we would never be poor, my sister and I. So I was definitely driven as the right decision to go to business school. And I respected that and I understood that. And so I worked really hard in high school to get the grades involved in going. Um, as a, before that age, I was much more focused on artistic. I was a dancer in our small town, artistic, you know, projects. 
But then when it came down to actually making this big life decision of, you know, I was also, I was luckily to, lucky to be, um, have good enough grades and I could sort of pick the business school I wanted to go. So I just thought, you know, that was the responsible thing to do. And I understood their logic for that. And I followed their guidance to that. But there was this other side of me that was also this romantic and this dreamer that was just sort of put aside for those few years. I went to business school. I felt a little bit out of, out of, um, I went to Laurier, Wilfrid Laurier, I met my husband, which was the biggest gift in the world. Mm. Um, but personally, in my colleagueship at school, I, I definitely felt somewhat alone. I was seeking something more in terms of the, um, that I felt like, shouldn't it also be something you love to learn? Like, I'm doing this now, but when I really got to doing it and felt the work involved, and I mean, it was tough, business school is tons of work, I thought, well, we had some electives and I started, you know, I was spending them in like astrology and love and its myths and geography. And I was super personally interested in the planet and all of these incredible things. And, but yes, I would figure out how to get this business degree and do it in the end. But I did, I didn't, I felt kind of alone in terms of like the, um, something was missing. I didn't hang out with other business students. I hung out with students that were in art and opera we had an amazing music program at laurier they were my dearest friends were not um business school friends i didn't feel like i shared the same values or that sole satisfaction of just being um good at those subjects understanding the business world and getting the great business job out of school like i just i almost it's bad to say i almost didn't care but i felt like well i can do that but also like there's got to be something more to life It's this gut feeling, it gotta be something more, led Jenny to the first attempt of creating something on her own terms. When I was working out of school in the first few years after business school, there was just that that feeling that of working for someone else that wasn't completely satisfying. Even though success was there by you know, on paper, I was doing great. My parents were proud. Um, I had lots of international travel for work. I was at a marketing consulting firm by the time I was 25. Uh, but ultimately, my heart was just, you know, I just felt that I I was called to do more. Mm-hmm. At 25, I quit that job and started Jenny Bird the first time. And it was, I actually sewed handbags I moved above Queen Mother Cafe into a bohemian loft apartment which Mm -hmm. was an amazing phase of my life and so much personal growth (laughs) and uh you know I tried it I tried it the first time the label looked different graphically design wise Mm -hmm. and I sewed all the handbags myself and pattern made them all myself and they were fabric bags and I would make them and walk down Queen Street and echo the jewelry store that's still there now she was one of my first customers I showed her these handmade bags and Um, but I was quickly on unemployment insurance because it was very um, financially, it actually, it wasn't a successful business, but I, I had learned a lot. I, I treated that half year as like my MBA. And what did you learn? In, uh, what the most important starting an accessories you... company? Um, that you actually, that my value, my time value in sewing each handbag, the formula wasn't going to work because if a, a bag that I could sew, would only garner so much in the retail market because it was 60 or $70 because it was actually, you could tell it was a, it was fun and cute and at the time trendy, but it was a, it was a hand sewn bag. Mm-hmm. Um, and that in order to really make a go of it and have a line, I would need to 
properly produce with factories, with machines that were making product that were refined enough that they met consumer expectations. Mm. So I went back to that job. They luckily took me back. And I continued on until I was 30. I became a VP. And that scared me enough that I quit to do it for real. Because I... Why was it scary to you? It was scary for me. I was more scared not to try it. Not to really give it a final go than I was to... Yeah. To, like, to try it. Mm. You know, I think fear, I mean, fear stands in the way of so much. And I, I was more scared of, of not doing it than I was of doing it. Because mm-hmm. what's the worst that could happen? Right. At that point, I also had a better sense of taste for the fashion market. I had more exposure to it. I had no exposure growing up, right? And I had more travel for work. I was going to New York a lot. Henry Bendel was in its heyday. I was watching Rebecca Minkoff start this incredible vision at the time and I had more experience with luxury products because I actually was making a good living at that point at like between 28 and 30. Um, so I kind of, I was able to purchase fashion and become a consumer of it mm-hmm. and and get really into it personally. Right. And I think I just had better judgment on what I would want my product to be than I did at 25. Because mm. still at 25, I couldn't um, afford those things. I wasn't yeah, so I, I really I really went for it in terms of, at 30, the quality of product I was going to launch with, and that was the first handbag collection. With more experiences, more learnings, and a lot more determination, Jenny now launches her first official handbag collection in 2008. But little did she know, a market crash is about to happen. the Great Recession, and mm-hmm. it was, um, there was no market for them. I, I put all of my savings into, so here's the second time I've started the company, right? And I've saved between 25 and 30, I saved as much as I could because I knew I wanted to do it again one day. So now I'd put all those savings into it. And then I had a big break and had a trunk show in New York City at Henry Bendel. And that weekend, I was showing at Henry Mandel. It was like the stars aligned, the markets crashed, Lehman Brothers went on. Like, it was just the crash. Oh, my God. And I had $500 little evening bags. They weren't even totes. They were little evening bags that were really special because I had casted this hardware on them. Um, and I quickly started asking all the contacts I had, like, made. Again. I just guerrilla approach or build that, built that business. Um, just cold calling people in the industry and asking for advice. And one of them was a showroom owner. And I called her and she said, Jenny, I, there's no market for you. Like, Gucci's and Fendi's are on sale for $400 right now. Like, you don't, I, no one could sell these handbags. Right. But that was sitting there in New York with all of, I mean, all of my savings. Because handbags are very expensive to start. You have pattern making fees, like... $500 each bag for a pattern, let alone your yeah. first samples. And if, you have, if you're doing seven bags and all these colors, like it was just a fortune. Jenny's now once again at a crossroad. One, she could go back to work again. Nope, she told herself, there's no way I'm going back. Then their second option is to quickly pivot and find a way to generate income. 
I had learned about casting hardware for the bags. I had cast vintage earrings that were like mm-hmm. um, the special sort of decor on the outside of the handbag. I just said, well, I'm going to go to the casting house and put some really cool pieces of jewelry together. And I'd actually been collecting vintage jewelry for years and it was right in front of my face, but I hadn't really yeah. realized it. And then they maybe the, they would mm-hmm. sell the designing of the jewelry. It just kind of flowed out of me anyway. It just yeah. kind of stumbled. It actually forced me to see a natural it was a natural design language right. so and then i know your first few trunk shows actually were hosted on your kitchen table yeah uh-huh. tell us more about that yeah no yeah for sure i mean i was a, we had a loft apartment my husband and i and that's how you know i just told everyone from my past career what i was doing now and tried to get as many people as i could mm-hmm. to come i would have a little saturday sale and I would record. I still have the names of the women who came. They're still my customers now, some of them. Original bird girls. You know, 12 women would come and it would it would it would help me, you know, survive for the next. That's why, you know, I will always thank the city for the people that are in it that come to burgeoning designers when they have their first few sales. I think it's so important to support yeah. them that way. Did you even know somebody would actually come to your apartment, your loft to, you know, buy something? Yeah. You did? Yeah, I think I believed wow. in this whole business every stage of it before it happened. Mm. Yeah. Wow. So at that point, you just feel like, I'm going to do it, and then this is going to happen. And it, and yeah, and what if it didn't? Then I'd figure out how to make them come. Maybe they'd come somewhere else if it was too much. You know, we lived at Queen and Sumac Regent Park for years before. Yeah. Or I call it, I call this our mama house, our family house. And it was it was out of the way then on the east side. But mm-hmm. what would be the worst that happened if they didn't come? I would just figure out how to get to them. So how did all happen? I mean, there's definitely so many things happening between, but yes. if you can pinpoint or a few highlights or pivotal moments that really took you from there on a kitchen table to over yeah. 500 retailers. Um, I think the biggest thing is, first of all, and I'll share some more specifics, but just actually visualization. So just saying where you imagine the company at the next step. Mm. And then just pursuing steps to reach that point. Visualization is super critical in every stage. It still is. So there's that. Specific things that happened to me in using visualization was that at the time, ShopBop was the place to be. You know, it's no longer the place to be. But at the time it was. So I had put their logo on the board. I looked at it every day. What would get that buyer's attention? What kind of collection did I have to create to be on there? Because I knew that if I was on there, boutiques were at the time using ShopBop. They had an incredible fashion director. Um, and they were using ShopBop to f- to decide what to carry in their boutiques. Mm. So I knew that that would... It's like a benchmark. It, would, it was like yeah. a being on stage where then other boutiques say, oh, I saw you on ShopBop. We'd love to have you in our store. Mm. So I would I would then think, okay, so I would strategically think what would require, you know, what would ShopBop love? And what do they don't have? And what do I want to create for them? And I would have them on my board and until that happened and then happened. Um, I remember the day that order came in. Really? Hmm. What was mm-hmm. it like that day? Do you remember what you were doing? And then how did the order come in? And, and how are you feeling? Um, you know what? You get. You have to be allow yourself to really celebrate all your wins because every. It sounds like this is the perfect story, and for every little win, there's like twelve huge knock you down moments. So if you really celebrate those little wins, so it obviously it felt like that. I was like, yes, like you know. 
it actually, my efforts paid off. My visualization paid off. Um, it showed me proof that um, I could manifest and the power in it. And it was, it showed me the power in waking up every day and focusing your choices. What are you going to focus on? Mm-hmm. What you focus on every day, if you directly connect it to where you want to be next, you will be where you want to be next. Mm. And so it really, it really gave me, I mean, it just fueled it, right? It just fueled me. Right. Yeah. How, I mean, kind of, this kind of ties back to what you shared earlier about your father. Yes, totally. Manifest, you know. He didn't even know he was doing it. Yeah, he didn't know that. I'm what, like, what Dad, do you called? realize that you were like my OG manifester? Like now that Did I you tell that, him that? I have recently because he had a retirement party. So what, did. what did he say? Well, he just kind of, oh, stop. <laughs> but it was his, I was trying to He's get He's a through. humble man. Oh, very, very. I was trying to get through his retirement speech, but he was. Um, yeah, for sure. You know, you're only as big as you'll let yourself be. Mm. You know, you only shine as much as you let yourself shine. Right. Yeah. And we yeah. don't serve each other by not shining. Yeah. So after shop up, and yeah. then what happened? And then Intermix right after that, which was big, because at the time they were so big. Yeah. And they were my favorite store. They were so cool. Um, they were, now the Gap has bought them, so it's a whole different story. But at the time, they were like the best boutique. And they bought a necklace. Mm. It was something I had taken about a week to make with about 14 different vintage chains and beads. The loft was covered in oh parts. My, God. my husband came home and said, that's the best thing you've ever designed. And I said, I think so too. And it was, it was really a sculpture. It was a piece of art. I sent the one sample to them. I had no idea how I'd make more because I didn't even know how I put it together. It was like built up from rows and rows of chains into the sculptural collar. Yeah. And, um, or even that I had the vintage parts to do any more of it. I was at a, using parts from a supplier. And they, they ordered a hundred pieces. That was in late spring. Yeah. And it took us the whole summer and interns and paid and card tables and folding tables lined up in the loft to produce that order for them. Oh my God. And, um, and what did you source those vintage I pieces? Found, I found it all. Uh, luckily, the supplier had enough for everything. But I had to dissect the piece. I had to take it apart. Yeah. So I knew how I had built it up. Wow. Figure out. We did it. We shipped to them and they sold out in two weeks. Wow. I had obviously priced it too low at retail. Yeah. And they ordered 75 more and I had to tell them I couldn't do it. Because yeah. it would be a sacrifice. But I had this great success of starting a relationship with them and also the ex- brand exposure with them, right. which was really big at the time. I actually remember the first time I heard about Jenny Bird. Oh, it was you a did? collaboration you did with Chapters a few years oh, ago. Oh, Indigo. Yeah, yeah, Oh, yeah. Indigo, yeah. yeah. So all this collaboration with big brands, you yeah. know, one after another, was it something you also visioned? Or you were just kind of, you manifest it and then the universe brought it to you? Um... I never sought that out. Um, it's interesting you say that. I probably should seek out. I'm currently seeking out other ones that I'm I would find very inspirational, including some more work with some artisans in different parts of the world. Um, but more commercial partnerships do tend to come to you as you have brand relevance in the market, as that one did. And then I just I look at it and decide whether it's relevant for the brand at the time, whether it's in line with what I'm creating artistically, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned about relevancy because that's actually one of my questions. As a mother, as a person, as a woman, you're yeah. constantly evolving. So your taste, you know, your values would definitely be evolving and changing over the years. So how do you stay kind of core to JB, but also bring your own evolvement into the business? Mm-hmm. 
So in my opinion, staying core is allowing yourself to evolve. You can't be afraid. You cannot hold on to what has worked in the past because everyone that's following you and enjoying your ride is evolving too. So what I think kills a brand is when they get stuck and they have maybe financial investor investors behind them that want to push continued future effort into what has worked financially in the past. And I'm very much happy to be um, sole owners of this with my husband, so we have no one to answer to that way. And so we evolve, and I'm free about it. And I call it Madonnaing yourself. You know, mm -hmm. every record and the new record for fall from Jenny Bird yeah. is very different. You can't be afraid. You have to sort of stay on that cusp of bringing the new, because that is what creation is. Like, how could I not do that? It'd just mm -hmm. be boring. Right. You know? Even if you say, oh, we have a classics catalog, I just feel like rolling my eyes because what, what is mm -hmm. classic in a t-shirt of jewelry to you now is not going to be the same style tomorrow. So right. even our, we call it our core catalog, even that evolves. Yeah. But I just let myself go to where I am just in love and gaga over a new direction. And that is all so tapped into the zeitgeist and our political and economic climate, what we feel like wearing on our bodies, how jewelry plays a role in our visual character we put on every day. Yeah. And that changes for us every year. It changes. This year, it's fascinating to see what's happening. It's so minimalist. It's so heirloom-based. We're going back to pieces that we want to feel, the hand in the pieces. We want to slow down. Mm -hmm. Pottery has never had a bigger moment than now right. because people totally. are need, the, they're craving the analog experience you know, in such a high-paced time. Mm -hmm. So what does that mean for the jewelry that I'm making? I have to start it with my hands. It has to be, you know, slow. It has yeah. to be something that you feel is worth holding on to for your daughters. Like, right. that means for fall, hint, a little hint, less, uh, you know, less <laughs> machine. Yeah, just less like, you know, that graphic, fun, flat, circular, machine cut, you know, Actually, they were hand cut amazingly, but still that very clean look of like our aerials and our beach house earrings and the graphic shapes. Like I know that no longer speaks to my soul. Like I just want to slow down. So fall mm -hmm. does that. Mm -hmm. uh, the whole collection were, is rooted in the concept of fluidity and, yeah. and slowness. It's just like a painting how the brush strokes are somebody's come from someone's own physical body. You mm -hmm. can tell that it's that, that artist, even though there might be a different... Right. style of painting you know yeah yeah totally so i assume on the early days you will be the one doing everything uh -huh, from everything. designing to packaging to shipping to <laughs> you know anything that a business needs yeah, yeah. and now you're more hands-off and then being the creative director so i wouldn't say it hands is off my team <laughs> i think my team might want me to be more hands-off <laughs> Which I feel bad about. But you're definitely not doing the shipping. The, no, yeah. No. The packaging anymore. I'm not going to the store to buy the boxes. No. no. So how did you... I'm, I'm, I'm sure this is like step-by-step step, uh, leading to where you are now. Yeah. So I think a lot of uh, designers or small business owners um, struggling or have been struggling is that kind of delicate works, like mm -hmm. handoff works, pieces, part of the works to somebody. So how did you gradually learn to let go... Um, I go back to that visualization. I mm. used to ride the streetcar from our loft to Queen East to, to Spadina when I first got the studio and envision people coming in and doing the things that they just made me, they just made me like, they just instantly put me in a bad mood. It was like business receipts, shipping to stores, collecting payment, my accounting, bookkeeping, like mm -hmm. all that stuff. 
getting quotes from UPS. Yeah. Oh, duty customs. Oh my God. When you first start <laughs> in Canada, the border is some whole beast to figure out. Like, and I would just close my eyes and envision that there was, I didn't know who they were. They were faceless, but there were people that were really good at that. And they were in there helping me do that. So I could do, I could do the, mm-hmm. the stuff that was actually causing the orders. And then that slowly, you know, makes you put the job descriptions together or seek that kind of person. And yeah. And every step, just doing that. I'm still doing it now for the next step. But yeah. what's the vision? What does it look like? Mm. I'm always like living in it in my head before we're there. Did you always manifest or imagine yourself to be a mother? I was never one of those girls that had a vision of a family. Um, I was more like, I wanted lovers and hot romances and movie. And I sought that out for many years. Um, I wasn't pri- ever prioritized. I wasn't like ever focused on having like the white dress and the babies. I didn't even think about having babies until mm. 35 maybe. I was really much more focused in building this dream life. I couldn't life be so big and beautiful. And um, maybe there's babies in that life. Maybe there's not. I didn't know. Yeah. I remember my mom saying to me, you know, it's okay if your cat is our grandchild. It's okay. I don't want you to feel pressured. She was very understanding. Wow, that's pretty awesome. Yeah, even though when, yeah. when I did get pregnant, she was beyond ecstatic. For yeah. sure. So now your second baby is about to, bore, to be born. Mm-hmm. What other things that nobody have told you about motherhood? Now you're personally experiencing it. You're like, oh my God, this is a world I'm tackling. You know, I just found it alarming how much we did not share with each other. And still, it's 2019. It's wild. The physical experience of it, the emotional and spiritual effects in your life. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is, it is something that I think should be talked about as one of one, the most. I had... Um, to go on a bit of a fertility journey because when I did decide, you know, one child might be nice. My husband and I were both kind of like, mm-hmm. we got married at 32. We were a little, you know, we. Uh, one thing I hated was when people said, you never know when you're ready, just have them. I was like, no, 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 I'm pretty sure I'm gonna know when I'm ready to consider having a child. We were financially not okay yet. This was business round two. I knew that my husband also, um, the way that his spirit is could not handle being that financially stressed. So when we were ready, we started to think about it. And then we had fertility challenges because I didn't realize I had endometriosis, Mm. which a big learning there was find out about your mother's or your sister's or your aunt's fertility journeys because it's very hereditary. Turns Mm. out my mother had it. My sister had it. I had been trying to get pregnant for a year. And so I had to have a surgery to help clean up physically what has happened with endometriosis. And then I was able to get my fertility on track and conceive August. And that was really awesome to just, and I just went into a fertility clinic and said, you know, I'm, I'm 36. No, at that point I was, yeah, I was 36. I've been trying for a year. Like Mm -hmm. I just want to check out my, and be empowered with insight and no. And then the doctor sort of uncovered that. That was incredible. And it was a girlfriend who said, you know, just go in and get checked. It's just, it's no different than going to a GP. Just go in and find out how your fertility health is. Because it's true that biologically we're meant to have children much younger in our lives. But also it turned out that I had this hereditary thing. So Mm, I think 
I think not being afraid to empower yourself and find out. And also in many, many cases, it can be a partner that's having the challenge, not you. Right. Um, so that was, um, that was a big learning. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like, um, I'm not sure about you, but a lot of um, mm-hmm. people are coming out of the stories to actually, um, for fertility problems. And then they went through the whole period of time blaming themselves, didn't know what to do about it. Even Leandra Medine from Man Repeller, you know, she's sharing this journey of like trying so hard to be pregnant, but it was not, happening so at the end she feel like she was a failure many people like her have the same feeling yeah. so do you remember during that year when you actually trying and that wasn't happening it's like what kind of thoughts going through your mind well then all of a sudden you haven't cared about having a baby your whole life and then you worry oh my god can i actually have one so for me it was not so much judgment but it was worry that it was an option mm. I, at this point i'd been able to create this new life for myself and i'd been able to do you know, to visualize anything that I wanted to come true, but this wasn't coming true. So it was kind of like, it was a real worry, I would say, because then I realized, oh, I actually would be, you know, I don't know beyond one child, but it would be really nice to have one. I think now we were ready. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you were ready. And then you feel like that could maybe not be an option for you. Right. Yeah. And then, and then you, um, yeah. And then you realize how important it is to be just as aware of that part of your health mm-hmm. as you, as a woman, as every part of your health. It's the most supportive thing we can do to each other, for each other. It's not for everyone to have children. My sister, it's not for her. You know, it's not for everyone to have children at different at the same time. I think there is such a pressure on being a perfectionist as a mom and doing it all that you maybe don't want to talk about feeling imperfect at it which guess what we all do? It's impossible to be perfect at it. You know, I don't know. But Especially I when you had the, your first birth, uh, the firstborn. Yes. Probably no, at that impossible. point, you didn't even know much. No. With the second one, you definitely had more expectations and then uh, things become from unknown to unknown. But the and first you kind born, of allow yeah. yourself to be less perfect. You know, when, you're, when your firstborn is born, you're also born a mother. You meet yourself as a mother for the yeah. first time, right? It's very profound your partner sees you as a mother for the first time so it's it's a huge personal growth period at the same time as it's the most you've ever been of service to to another human being so you actually your 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 capacity to serve someone else has pushed to such limits both partners Mm -hmm. that it's the most it's deeply moving because you didn't know you had that much to give someone else. And I mean physically, emotionally, when you're tired, like I mean that kind of giving. Yeah. Um, at the same time, it, it, it shows you the capacity of, he, of being of humankind to serve another person. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's deeply moving to see your partner doing that and to see yourself doing that. But at the same time, it's totally shocking. Your entire world of being individuals, of being a couple... Right. In love running around downtown, parties, dinners out with each other. Mm-hmm. It's your entire individualized focus is is gone. And that is very shocking and can be very hard on each of you individually, your mm-hmm. partner, um, and on um, on yourself. Yeah. And I think that's something that we have to, you have to recognize going in. It's not just, oh, I'm so tired. It's like, oh my God, my entire 
The circadian rhythm of our life has changed. My entire ability to spend the time I used to spend on myself is mm -hmm. now completely shifted and gone, yeah. and I'm trying to grasp at how to find five minutes. I mean, it's, it's, it's a very big thing to support each other through as husband and wife, and yeah. I think that cannot be forgotten. And especially when you both running the business together. Oh my God! Yeah. And now you even have to. That itself is a baby. Yeah. Right. Because you both nurturing this business together, dividing time, duties, and then with yes. August and a newborn is sometimes really hard to set boundaries, to take shifts, to have equal responsibilities. Yeah. Um, yeah. Did you find that was challenging? I think the biggest challenge was you're so focused on your new person. That you have to remember to focus on each other,、mm. and whatever Adam needed as my spouse to come back into the fold and be that of service to the person,、uh, to August and to me, he might have needed something that I didn't need. I think the balance there for me was making sure, and for him, we were still in tune with each other because、mm -hmm. we were the really the we are the foundation of the household. So,、yeah. um, I think that's number one priority. I will say, having a business and a baby, just on another topic, people ask me, "Oh, it must be. How do I even do it if I am self-employed?" So many people are self-employed now. I do see it as more of a gift than a hindrance because you can pull back as you need, as you as your partner needs you to, as your partner needs to. If you're in business together, if you're not, you have freedom. You don't have to just leave on maternity leave and then bam, come back full time, which would be very hard. I think I needed to ease back as I was ready. And it affords you the luxury to do that, to have a bit of you time. And I liked going back. I thought I'd bring him to the office in the bassinet. I never、mm. did. Never did. You never. No, I just as soon as I could get the breast milk in a bottle and he could take a bottle, I would run over for an hour or two of time for me to be me because I was still me, and、mm. then come home.、Um, but that flexibility of not having to go、yeah. back full time to a job right away would be shocking. I think it's actually in a lot of ways easier when you are your own boss. At least you have that flexibility.、Mm -hmm. It's going to be hard. I'm 42. You know, I think、um, that's why I try to stay as fit as I can. The sleep、wow. deprivation will not be any easier. Yeah.、Um, but but what will be easier is just just being more relaxed and knowing that you know、yeah. they're going to be fine. One of the things I wanted to talk about motherhood is I think it's so important now to practice slow motherhood is what I call it.、Mm. What does that mean?、Um, there is a tendency for mothers to overprogram kids and put our own like hyper scheduled lives and pace onto our children.、Mm -hmm. And I don't know if it comes from competing about oh so and so's in ballet and doing、oh, this、yeah. and. You know, with other mothers and comparing how much stimulation and learning that you've given your child or exposure, and and it's all wonderful, and it all comes from a place of wanting to expose them to everything. But there's also a need to recognize this high vibration that we're living on when we come home, and to just be slow and not overprogram our children,、mm. and to allow space and time in our calendars for days where you just stay in your pajamas and there is no agenda. Right. And their imagination has space to flourish because they have time to just play alone, or、yeah. even space in the conversation with them, consciously, 
not talking at them, but maybe walking beside them in silence and waiting to hear what comes up for them. Mm. And you're experiencing the pace. Like uh, my parents didn't run at the pace that I'm running at, yeah. you know? So I try to protect him with this slowness, this bubble of slowness where I think being a parent is being a conscious parent is it's not about dominating and pushing and setting your agenda for the day. It's about this like kinship and spiritual journey together and, you know, meeting each other in a place of space where you actually see where he, he or she can, could need some time. But, um, so we're recording this you call library. Yeah. Is that something where you and August and your husband Adam, sometimes we spend time together? Yeah. So this is our no technology room. This is where we come in, um, where Adam and I have our date night, our date time after, yeah. or our alone time if we need it. And we give each other that. Yeah. Um, after August goes to bed, where we read our books, if you just slow down enough to just be with them, mm-hmm. the the presence that they demand is the pre- they teach you presence. Mm-hmm. And then when you're there, you're you're not. You're just being with them, and they actually take you back. I think the biggest gift that August has given me is they take they uncover your true essence that you maybe even forgot parts of mm. because it's just been layered on top of by yeah. life in the world. And you, and then if they're helping you uncover that, you can connect with them in such a beautiful, pure way that, you know, and that's what yeah. their spirit craves. Their spirit doesn't crave another, you know. Yeah. And even just the way you express and share is so grounding in a way. Is that something you... You have always been like this or being a mother has actually bring this slowness out of you? I think the slowness, we were talking before about the yin-yang, this dichotomy. I think I live like that Mm. because I'm also in hyperdrive of manifesting my visions. Right. Like when I go to work, I do thrive on being like that and Mm -hmm. doing that. But then I need to completely go to zero miles an hour. Mm. So I think it's just my way of of having a balance and being healthy of my well-being. Right. Um, so before we get into the rapid fire question or anything else you want to explore, mm-hmm. um, I kind of just wanted to ask, do you currently have any manifestation that you wanted to take on, whether it's being a mother, being a businesswoman, just mm-hmm. being a person, anything that you kind of like marinating right now? Well, because I am about to be needed in the biggest role of my life and like when as soon as she comes out, mm-hmm. I'm allowing myself in the current moment to just receive her. And then once we have our feet on our ground in our new household rhythm and our family rhythm, I mean, I, I have this undercurrent of, you know, I have this feeling that I have work to do and it's in using... Mm-hmm. Jenny Bird to, and maybe it's not even using Jenny Bird, but it's using Jenny Bird myself and maybe the company to help lift others up and to make an impact in different ways than I've figured out to do yet. I'm I'm trying to figure that out. Mm. It's, it's... Uh, so you feel like there's something... There's a calling to do right. more. There's a calling for me to do more. You know, mm-hmm. I feel very fortunate and... I'm excited to explore what that is and again let the universe show me the signs as I am as I embark on the paths of that. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you feel just as inspired as I am. Please head to Apple Podcast, leave us a comment and review, and share with all your friends. 
Your support will keep us going, and let more women find us. If you like, you can also listen on Spotify. And last but not the least, make sure to join Secret Supply on DearSecrets.com to receive the exclusive rapid-fire chat with Jenny and useful resources recommended from other seekers. Next letter will be in your inbox on March twenty-eighth. So see you soon. Until then, keep seeking. Thank、you